Hello and welcome to episode 71 of Tea or Books. My name is Rachel. Oh, we're being very formal. My name is Simon. Um, and today we are going to be talking about multi-narrative versus single narrative. And we're going to be comparing two books about Victorian childhood, um, period piece by Gwen Raverett and Lond- A London Child of the 1870s by Molly Hughes. So, first of all, Simon, how are you? What are you reading? Yeah, good, thanks. I realised that last week was my last day of being in the office all five days until the week beginning the 13th of May. So, loving life. It's going on holidays, got all those bank holidays as well. It's great. Yes. Um, we are entering the best part of the year, really, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, I mean, I wish they'd spread this, particularly since Easter's late, all the bank holidays are so close to each other. But and I'd rather they spread them out slightly. But we've we um. Yeah. Um, and I, one of the books I'm reading, I was thinking, which of the ones should I choose to discuss here? Uh, Lonely City by Olivia Lang. Have you okay. come across that? I've heard of Olivia Lang, but I've not come across that book. She wrote To the River, which I loved, which is um, her walking along the river ooze and reflecting on the various things connected with it, such as Virginia Woolf Virginia. drowning in it, yeah. um, them discovering dinosaurs near it. Not that, not Virginia Woolf, obviously, whoever discovered it, I forget. Um, and and she, and it was, was um, sort of getting over a breakup, was what motivated her to do it. And she go off all these little tangents, talk about, you know, the dinosaur wars or something. Um, and all sorts of things about Virginia Woolf, because To the River is a is a play on To the Lighthouse, of course. Uh, and I really mm-hmm. like that. And so I, I think my parents gave me Lonely City when it was on my, my wish list. And I am enjoying it. It's it's another nonfiction. It's set in. It's all about New York. Um, she was feeling quite lonely there, and she's looked at other people who have felt lonely there. But I, I think what makes it not as good as To the River for me is that To the River was so good at sort of winding these people into the narrative of her own life, and she, you know, these stray moments, and it come back to what she could see in the next field, etc. Whereas this one feels a lot more episodic i guess so she will introduce each chapter with how she's feeling but then it will just be a chapter on edward hopper or andy warhol or whoever um and it yeah it doesn't feel quite so coherent together and also almost all of them so far have been artists and there are no pictures in the book so i'm constantly having to google (laughs) to see what she's talking about which is a shame but i guess they they couldn't afford the image rights to everything that's mentioned it's an expensive job isn't it but she's a good writer. She's a very personable writer. And I've got another one, which I can't remember the name of right now, but it's all about um, authors and alcohol. So she does pick interesting topics. Oh. Yeah. How about you? How are you? What are you reading? I'm okay, thank you. On the uh, downward leap, leap, that doesn't make sense, downward <laughs> Spiral. tumble, I would say, at the moment, tumble oh. towards the Easter holidays, which is nice. Um, today I got told, you can't expect us to do any work today. It's the last week of term. I was like, <laughs> right. It's Monday, so I'm not really sure where the rest of this week is going to go. Um, but yes, I am busy reading. Um, I finished Alone in Berlin mm. by Hans Salada, which I absolutely loved. Really enjoyed it. Um, you know, obviously, it's, it's not a book that you love because the story is uplifting or anything. It's yeah. obviously deep, sad <laughs> in many ways. Um, but also, I did find it encouraging in others and I just found I've not really read anything about wartime Germany um, and I just really found it fascinating and mm. I, I now immediately went to read Goodbye to Berlin by Christopher Isherwood which I'm halfway through um, and I'm really enjoying I didn't realise it was um, a series of vignettes rather than a novel no I didn't know um, yeah so the introduction to it explains that so basically uh, Mr Norris changes trains and Goodbye to Berlin are sections of what he had conceived to be a, a much longer novel. Oh, I see. And eventually, they would just start to these these two books. Um, so I shall read Mr. Norris Changes Trains afterwards because they're connected. But yeah, I'm really mm-hmm. enjoying it. So if, if anyone's got any other recommendations for books about wartime Germany, I will be very grateful for your suggestions because this is a very new area for me. Um, I've got another book by Hans Verlader to read as well. Um, but yeah, I'm, I feel like as I'm on a roll, I'll read as much as I can can get. So well, yeah, do let us know. But I have one suggestion that you might already know: um, non nonfiction, a Persephone on the other side by Mid- Matilda Wolf Munkenberg. 
Oh yes, yes, the letters, and she's stuck in Germany. Yes, so it's right for children who aren't exactly, and it's um, and it goes from the war through to the I think five years after the war, maybe what it was like being an someone who was anti-Hitler living in Germany after the war. Okay, um, and that's yeah, that's really interesting. Right, interesting. Um, do you want to do a surprise segment on things Rachel was wrong about in previous podcasts? <laughs> What was I wrong about? <laughs> wrong is subjective, I guess. But we had two people get in touch to say that they disagree with you about things that, you, that you've said, which is fun. What was, what was this? <laughs> Not in the most recent this? episode. One of them, I can't even remember what it was, but apparently you, one of us, I'm going to say it was you, sport the ending to a novel. But that's because I can't remember what the novel was and I hadn't read it. It must have been you. <laughs> anyway. What was the novel? I don't know. I should have done some prep. Um... Someone just said, great, great podcast, love hearing your chat, but you spoiled the end of that novel. But since they, they'd obviously read the novel themselves, so they weren't worried, and I didn't notice. So hopefully everyone was okay. Yeah. The other thing, uh, Haley got in touch to say that Walter Scott is great. <laughs> You're wrong about Walter Scott. Well, I'm sorry, Haley, <laughs> but every single copy of Walter Scott in the charity shop would uh, disagree with you on that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean... I think we'd I probably still team anti Scott even without having read him. But Haley, I will maybe try him one day to to see whether I am team Haley or team Rachel. I do love the legacy though and the story of Walter Scott, and I use him regularly in the classroom as an example of how you know the canon changes over time. Well, there you go. His his failure is an object lesson. <laughs> exactly. My year eight's got a very fascinating lesson on him this year with a case study that I made myself. And um, they loved it. Great. But yeah. yes, people do get in touch if you disagree with us. It's quite fun. Particularly if you disagree with Rachel. But if you also if you disagree with me, you can get in touch. Sure, everyone disagrees with you. But, you know, <laughs> you can't even remember what people say. That's the most ridiculous part. <laughs> We've already been talking just before we start recording about how bad my memory is. Now Rachel's yeah. using it to mock me. Well, you deserve it. So there you are. <laughs> when you get to my age, Rachel, in an approximate six month time. <laughs> <laughs> It's actually much sooner than that, but yeah, yeah can't even remember my birthday. Oh, I meant, I mean, I'm still six months older than you, wasn't That's what I was going with. Oh, right, I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well. I mean, I don't know when your birthday is, but I, I feel like I feel like May something. It is May, yeah. There you go, that's not bad. This year it's on the bank holiday, which is very exciting. Ooh, May the 6th. Then. Day off work, indeed. Yeah. Well, that's something to look forward to. It is. <laughs> right. Well, that, yes. um, let's move on to our first topic which is it your suggestion or did somebody else suggest it this is actually mine we do have a couple of good suggestions for future episodes but I shoehorned my own suggestion in, <laughs> in first and I'm surprised we haven't talked about this before actually so versus single narrative yes. if we have talked about it we've both totally forgotten yeah. so it's going to be good <laughs> Completely new discussion anyway. That's true. Um, That's true. Did you have something in mind that you wanted to to start off with? Well, the thing that made me think about it as a topic was um, because I was listening to Barbara Kingsolver's Prodigal Summer. Uh, mm-hmm. And I mentioned briefly last episode, I think maybe episode before that, that, um, that I had really loved Pigs in Heaven by Barbara Kingsolver, which I read towards the end of last year. Uh, and it was my third Kingsolver novel, but I hadn't read one for many years, so I thought, I'll go and get another, and I had an audiobook credit, so I downloaded Prodigal Summer. I've since learned that it's it's not regarded as one of her best by Kingsolver fans, uh, but I did um, I did really enjoy it. It was, let's see, uh, it's uh, three different perspectives in this um, mountainous rural area, one of whom is obsessed with predators, one of whom is obsessed with um, trees, some sort of trees, I forget what sort of trees, <laughs> um, and the other one who is obsessed was in a, is an entomologist. Uh, and they have various other things going on in their lives, obviously, but, uh, and it looks at how they're either starting new lives or coming to the end of lives or whatever stage that they're at, but also sees a lot through the lens of the natural world. Uh, I'm not wildly interested in the natural world, <laughs> so that was a bit of a stumbling block for me because there'd be a lot of pages where it was just one character without any other humans on the page, um, just sort of thinking about butterflies or something. Uh, and I, 
I think I love her when she's doing human interaction conversations and people getting to know more about each other or relationships falling apart or whatever. I think she's brilliant at all of that. But when it's just somebody thinking about how coyotes live, then then yeah, it doesn't doesn't quite do it for me. But it is told through these three voices sequentially. Um, and at first, there's no connection between them at all. The connections between them are never overplayed. But you do get hints that they link to each other coming coming up in the different sections. But yes, it was that that made me think um, what a sort of tricky balancing act, balancing act it is to have three or you know two, three, four voices in a novel because you have to make the reader want to spend time with each of them, not just think, oh, I wish we were back with that one. But when the next person appears, to think, oh, that's good. They've come back round again. Yeah. Uh, can you think of any examples, good or bad, that you have read in, in that sphere? I actually, um, one of the books that I thought really wouldn't work that I was reading and that I really loved was, it's actually a, a young adult book that I read for school but really loved. Um, and it's called Pax. Um, oh, I've got and- that. Yeah, it's wonderful. So I forget the name of the author, actually. Um, but you will look that up to me afterwards. Yeah, I'll put it in the yeah. notes. <laughs> um, sorry, everyone. And it's a story that's told half through the eyes of a, of a teenage boy and half through the eyes of a fox. And it sounds like it shouldn't work, mm. but it completely does. And, I mean, I was just in, in tears by the end. Um, mm. And it's the story of a, of a boy who it's set in a kind of, Rec- slightly recognizable future it's it seems to be america but it's it's not now it's a slightly dystopian there's a war going on but the, the details are very vague and the the boy uh lives with his his dad um he's a single father and his dad has to go off and fight in the war so um the boy has to be sent off to go and live with his grand grandparents and he's got this pet fox and he's not allowed to take the pet fox with him. So there's this sort of heartbreaking scene that's very similar to the scene in Toy Story when Jesse gets <laughs> left side of the road, um, where Pax, his, his fox has to be, has to be left, has to be abandoned. And what's, and then it's like, you know, there's a, there's much more to the plot than this. And then it's the story of, of the boy's journey and his attempts to find the fox again and, and the fox. And it's got a really unexpected ending, but it's, is really wonderful in creating, humanising really a fox, which I find certainly in England foxes are very um, are treated as vermin really. Mm. Uh, and just to to read this description of of this fox and how pleased he was at the beginning, and you know where's he gone and why has he left me and this must be a mistake and him waiting there for hours expecting him to come back. Oh, Aww. it just breaks my heart. Um, and it just, I thought this, this could either be done really badly and be a bit cheesy and, and completely unrealistic, or it could be really wonderful. And, and for me, it was just so innovative as well, um, to approach it from that angle and, and to learn that, that it's very not good for children to read. It's the stories about, you know, what it means to love somebody and what it means to love somebody so much that you're ready to let them go because it's the best thing for them. Um, and it's just, oh, it's heartbreaking. And I just loved it. Uh, it. If you just told it through the voice of the boy, it would not have been anywhere near as effective as it was. Yeah, that's a good example of when it works, when, when the device is used really well. It's just say it's by Sarah Pennypacker. Let's look that up. Oh, yes. Thank you. Um, and I've added it to the list of potential future things to talk about <laughs> since you've read it and I've got it. But um, Yeah, because it, it does feel broadly like quite a new thing. Um, in the last 30 years maybe this has been people have been using this at least i can think of any examples older than that um one of the other ones i really love is by, it's called speaking of love by angela young which um i think if you've read that um it's okay, I think it's about it before. probably yeah so it came out uh 2008 maybe and it's yeah again three different voices I have a feeling that maybe at least one of them is in the third person and others are in the first person, but um, but it's essentially different perspectives. And they are characters who are converging on a storytelling festival, so they, the perspectives do come together at the end uh, as they come to the same event, which I think worked really well. Um, and yes, when I, I asked people at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash tealbooks, uh, if they had any suggestions, um, and... Uh, we've got a couple of responses, but Rebecca pointed out that all, many of her favourites, so she's mentioned 
um, Jane Eyre, I Catch the Castle, The Book Thief by Marcus Zusak, Flowers for Algernon by Daniel Keyes, all of which are, well, The Book Thief's not that old, but the other's quite old, um, are all single perspectives. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a classic that wasn't a single perspective or wasn't a single... You might get lots of different people's views in one narrative. If it's in the third person, it might flip between them or you might yeah, linger on one person more than another, but you don't get them... Um, discreetly separated in the way that that's what we're talking about when we mean multi-narrative now, isn't it? Well, yes and no. I think there are some that are. So, for example, epistolary novels got around okay. it, like yeah, yeah. and diaries. So, for example, you've got uh, The Tenant of Welfare Hall, Wuthering Heights, Dracula, um, Frankenstein. They're all kind of narratives within narratives. That's a very good point. They, I guess the whole Victorian sense of must have authenticity where people are always finding diaries exactly. or, yeah, or cr- yeah and so you've got um the device of i just need to have a drink sorry um <laughs> pausing to have some water um there are definitely that attempt was made to um to kind of give different perspectives and i think that was really the only way they seemed to doing it you said you wouldn't have oh, right, this chapter's in the voice of this person, this chapter's in the voice of that person. It was very much a, you know, I found this diary and let's look at the diary and now let's come out of the diary and, and look at this. And, and absolutely, as you say, it's it's that drive for that fashion, certainly at the early, late 18th century and with Gothic novels and early 19th century where you've got that um, ridiculous <laughs> thing where they would write it this is the true story of this person and I mean whether people actually fell for it or not I don't know but um so I think what's what's quite interesting about what you say is how that multi-narrative has evolved I think readers have always wanted to see things from different perspectives yeah I think um you know and that's where the omniscient narrator comes from really isn't it wanting to get inside everybody's heads and hear everybody's thoughts um but I think I think something that actually I think modern novels aren't very good at is is doing doing that in more creative ways. I, I I personally find that kind of oh let's have one chapter in this person's voice and then we'll go and see somebody else for a chapter and then we'll go and see somebody else. I get annoyed because often I don't like one of those characters or one of those stories as much as the others and I'm just thinking the whole time well I just want to go back to this person now and I've got to wait half the book to see them again. Um, yeah, that is the problem if they make one too appealing and I think. Yeah, so with Prodigal Summer, the of the three, the the old man who was who liked trees was the one I was always least interested in coming back to of the three, um, and it was never oh gosh I got to, he's here I can't wait to get rid of him but um but I definitely felt more drawn to some of them and I mean I, in any book you're likely to feel more empathy or you know more affection for certain characters than others but if they're all in one narrative it doesn't affect the reading experience particularly but yes I mean if you if you took sort of, I don't know, Pride and Prejudice and half of it, well, a third was from Lizzie, a third was from Darcy, and a third was from Aunt Gardner or something, you'd think, well, Aunt Gardner's all very well in her place, but <laughs> I don't necessarily want to spend yeah, a third of the think. book with her. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's a bit of a gimmick, really, isn't it? I don't think you always need to hear everybody's perspective. Um, I think, wasn't there that book, I think it's an Ali Smith book, that um, a couple of years ago where... You could buy the book, half of it yes, was in yeah. character and the other half was another. And, and if you bought some versions of the book started with um, one person's story and others with the other, and it just depended on which one you picked up in the bookshop. Was that um, how, how to be both? Yes, that's right, yeah. Um, I mean, I started reading it and just couldn't get on with it at all. But I thought, again, that's quite clever. In the, I, I don't know how she managed to make it work so that it didn't matter which story you read first, but... At the same time, I think, well, if you don't really like that character, you're not really interested, you're stuck with them for half a book. Yeah. And then the rest of the book, you're in someone else's head. And, I mean, personally, I always just prefer a third-person narrator or a first-person narrator that you stay with the whole way through. Because I think if it's there's a story, it's either a story of, of one person and their experience of the world. And that's what I find interesting, is seeing the world through that person's eyes and having the input of other characters and in, in with other characters that help you to unpick whether that person is someone you can trust or not I enjoy that process of reading I don't necessarily want to be you know oh right so we're going to do this day five times and each time we're going to see it from a different person's perspective for me that's not an interesting 
way of looking at a narrative of, of story, if you see what I mean. I'd rather have seen that story through five people's perspective through a third person narrator rather than having to retell the day five different times. That's interesting because uh, you saying that remind me, reminded me of Five Little Pigs by Agatha Christie, um, right. which is often people rate it as one of their favourite of her mysteries. And I, and I think the mystery plotline is, is good and the solution's good, but it's all done through different witnesses recounting the day. And it does mean you're just retreading that same story over and over again, often with the same conversations just seen from a different side. I found it so boring by the time I got towards the end when I was on the same, on the, you know, fourth or fifth time round for, for the conversations. So in, in my head, I really like the idea of seeing the same event through different perspectives, but I've got a feeling it's something that I might prefer on screen than on the page. I don't know quite why. Yes. It's easier to make it feel more different or to see different. Obviously, you're just literally seeing, hello cat, <laughs> to see different things. Um, yeah, whereas the ABC murders was another one I thought of as a multiple narrative because you've got the murderer speaking often, but you don't. Well, is yeah, it, is the murderer there's someone, a suspect or something? I forget is is speaking, but you don't know who they are, um, and that's interspersed with the third person looking at Waru narrating, and and that works really well because it's not the same scene again. It's it is helping you put together the pieces. I mean, I think like any of any anything that can be a gimmick, uh, if it's there for the right reasons and it's used well. It works really well and enhances the novel. But there did seem to be a period about 10 years ago where every novel seemed to have to have at least two perspectives. Um, and it just, you thought, you don't, why? What, what's this adding? If it's not adding something, then why is it here? Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and I think you've got to think about it carefully from a writing perspective. You know, why do you need to tell the, why do you need to have the story told through these different perspectives? What's it actually adding to the story and to the reader's experience? In that one novel I read recently that really worked with that was um, The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, which I know I've mm-hmm. banged on about ages. Oh, we did it on the podcast, didn't we? Absolutely. Yeah, we did. You know, I absolutely loved that. And I loved the fact that every day was told through a different character. But it kind of wasn't the same day because every day, the previous day's mm-hmm. events affected what happened that day. So that, for me, worked brilliantly because I was seeing things, but it was kind of kind of through a distorted lens every time. Um, and I also really thought it was very clever how the voice stayed the same, but the, the other people's response to the character, because even mm-hmm. though that the characters want a little bit of that person's personality, still essentially themselves, which I thought was very, very clever. Yeah, I agree. That was done in a really um, clever way. Yeah. Uh, and speak, so the other person who commented on Patreon is Lindsay, who gave a, a list. I don't know if she's read them, but she just got a list from Goodreads of different multiple um, multiple narrators books uh, here's a little t- quiz for you Rachel so I'm going to list them all I've read one of them see if you can guess which one it is I've read Gone Girl okay. The Girl on the Train Eleanor and Park The Help As I Lay Dying Cloud Atlas Me Before You and The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow right knowing you it's either going to be The Help or Me Before You okay I feel like you would have read The Help Correct, you got it right. <laughs> well done. It's not, um, I forgot that was I read that so many years ago. Yes, I'd forgotten that, to be honest. Um, yes, I do. I mean, like, I agree with you. I, I think it's very much a, a kind uh, last 20, 30 years thing. It's, it's also very common in children's and young adult fiction. I think more so than adult fiction. Hmm. Um, because I do think children have slightly shorter attention spans these days, and they the, the kids in uh, that I teach seem to really like those sorts of books. Um, they like seeing all the different perspectives, and they they're quite happy with that sort of structure. Whereas, you know, when I was growing up, no books were like that really. Yeah, and it does lend itself, I guess, to the to the romance novel or the young adult romance, um, which is not a genre I know very much at all about. But I get the impression from, say, Eleanor and Park that I think it is. You know, alternate chapters of of people who will eventually be a couple or who are a couple or something. Yeah, there's an attempt there as well, I think, to try and appeal to both genders and um, to en- engage readers by well, if you don't like this character, then you'll like this one. So you know, you can keep you can keep going with the book even if you don't like half of it. But um, just looking up at my bookshelves to see whether I can see any other examples i mean it's not really as i say it's not really something i like so i probably don't have <laughs> another one that rebecca mentions that is 
I can't think they're all in the third person, but it is multiple perspectives, is They Came Like Swallows by William Maxwell, which I know you do like. Oh, my goodness. And that, I believe, I isn't that, that in three, four sections and each one's from a different person? I don't think, oh, I don't think so. I think it's the same person all the way through, isn't it? Is it? Let me consult my Get copy. Your copy. I was going to say my copy's in another room, otherwise I... <laughs> Everyone knows where I'm going now because you've all I can picture it exactly. Um, where is Maxwell? Here we are. Okay, Maxwell, let's have a look. Okay. Oh, do you know what? I think you're right, yeah. Okay. Yes, I vaguely remembered it being, but I would certainly not have been confident. (laughs) But it's all third person. Yes, yeah. Yeah. I need to read that book again. The thing is, I, I. I've been putting it off because, I mean, honestly, I just cry like a baby every time. <laughs> it's devastating. Isn't it? It's so devastating. But yes, I think um, it can it certainly can still be done in the third person narrator. And I think that often works as well. Yeah. Um, in fact, I often don't remember if a book's been the first or third person, particularly if they're good at getting across a perspective through the third person. So uh, um, you've nailed your colours to the mast, I think, on what you think about. Um, yeah. Are you going to say that single single perspective or single narrative for me yes though I mean, i'm mean, i not dead against them i'm i obviously i enjoy a 19th century multi-narrative novel um but from yeah it's not it's not my favorite yeah whereas um i don't dislike the concept but i think because it's it was such a rare thing that in the period that of books that i most like <laughs> um you know in 20s 30s that just by sheer volume of the ones that I, I like, I'm going to go also with a single narrative. But I would be interested to hear, particularly any examples from the 20s, 30s, 40s, if anyone, if anyone can think of any that do the multi-narrative. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Save our own agreement. Let's see how we do in the second half with these two childhood memoirs. Um, when did you first read either of these, Rachel? Um. I don't remember when I read the Molly Hughes one. I think it was about five or six years ago. But period piece I read um, last year or maybe before then. I don't know. In fact, I'm looking at my review. And apparently I read this two years ago. There you go. Um, who, who knows? The time just flies. Um, and I had heard about it for quite some time. And then I picked it up in the charity shop in Tunbridge Wells, I think. Um and I didn't had no idea until I started it that Gwen Ravrat was um, Charles Darwin's granddaughter. And if I'd have known that, I would have picked it up earlier. Um, so, yes. And the Molly Hughes I was given as a very kind gift from lovely Darlene in Canada. Aww. Yeah. Um, See, so normally we would do summaries of them. We still can do, but I can't really think of any way to say summaries of these other than... Gwen Reverence is about being a child in London in the 1870s. <laughs> and Sorry, the other way. It's Molly Hughes is about that. Yeah. And Gwen Reverence is about being a child in Cambridge in the 1880s. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah, there's nothing much really more to say. They're wonderful memoirs of very different lives, actually, because Gwen Reverence, even though I think she would describe herself as being middle class, certainly wouldn't be the middle class of, of my expectation. No. <laughs> um, and Molly Hughes was very much a middle class family, and for me, I think what what I found wonderful about both of them is the description of the little things about daily life that you do often wonder about and don't know because people in novels and things, they don't tend to describe the minutiae of, of things. But um, like I remember a, a moment in Period Piece where she's Gwen Ravrat's describing the process of getting ready in the morning. Mm-hmm. And and describing exactly how many petticoats they put on, and then yeah, what yes, yeah. afterwards, and then what they put on over that. And I just thought, well, now I understand exactly what you would have worn and the process of putting it on. But I've I've never read that anywhere before. And it, it's that what also I found it quite touching because I thought all of these memories now of of those day to day details of how life was lived are gone. Yeah, and both of them are writing from some distance. And so, so appreciated that those memories were going. So, Molly Hughes was writing in the 30s, about the 70s, and around that time. And Gwen Ravrat was writing in the, is it 50s, early 60s? Yes. Lo- I think along, so. Yeah. So, she was much older by the time she was doing it. But, um, but yes, I think that one of the issues, I, I shouldn't start on negative, but I'm going to. One of, the, one of the issues I had with the Molly Hughes one was how much she kept comparing 
to the children of today, the children of today being in the 1930s. And there's always a danger whenever you treat the time you're writing as the you know the height of modernity, that it really does date a book. So I, I found that a lot more in that one than in Gwen, Gwen Rivers, in that she kept saying, you know, was, the roads were so much quieter than than they are now in our hectic roads. And thinking compared to now, obviously, the roads of the 1930s were yeah. much, much quieter. Um, I really enjoyed both of them. I read them both for the podcast this time. I've had them both for a long time. I bought Period Piece 15 years ago, so I'm glad that I finally got around to reading it. Um, I know, sweetie. Yes, okay, you can sit on my lap then if you want. I'm talking to my cat for the time to start anything scandalous. <laughs> um, there you go, sit down. Sorry. That's quite all right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I I did enjoy them. I felt um, Molly Hughes was quite, oh, I don't know, not blinkered, but very Pollyanna-ish and optimistic about quite a difficult childhood. In some ways, because as you're saying, well, it's not even that they're middle class, it's that their class seemed to constantly shift. They were moving in and out of big and small houses. So her father's handling of finances was a bit erratic. Quite strange, the bits where she'd talk about how her brothers just sent her all the time to do their chores for her and she didn't have any education, but she was thrilled about this. It was always wonderful to do a job for anyone and she knew that the girls weren't as important as the boys, etc. Which I found a little odd. I don't know if that struck you at all. Yeah. I just, I've, well, I really liked, I, I, I mean, I, yeah, she's very, you know, sunny side up with everything and, oh, well, you know, we were all dying, but it didn't matter. <laughs> um, but I, I thought that was also probably very indicative of the type of attitude she was brought up with. I mean, her mother seemed to be very much like that, you know, you have to make the best of things and that's quite a Victorian attitude, very much. In the 1870s was the real era of the self, self-help book, like from Samuel Smiles and things like that. So I think a lot of people were brought up with that. You've just got to grin and bear it and get on with things and see things in the best way you possibly can. Um, I think for me, what I found really interesting about the book is, as you say, that, that constant sense of movement. And I think what a lot of people don't realise about the 19th century is that even, you know, very what we would consider upper middle class people nowadays very wealthy people would not have bought houses in london they would have rented and so mm-hmm. people did move much more frequently and I, I think in the neighborhood i mean what's quite interesting is the the neighborhood where she lived is just around the corner from me um okay. i mean houses here now are millions of pounds but that kind of neighborhood where it's kind of genteel but that constant sense of if dad loses his job, everything's gone and we've got to pack up and go. And that gradual, the fragility, really, of of their lives, of, of basically living paycheck to paycheck, really, um, was, I think, quite powerful. And the fact that you, that kind of lack of control and lack of certainty um, and how well that was hidden from the children as well. I mean, obviously, she, from an adult's perspective, she could look back and, and realise, oh, actually, we clearly didn't have any money and my poor mum was doing her best to hide it. Um, but I also loved the little descriptions of things like the monkey, um, the the guy, the organ grinder with his monkey that would come round and they'd hear the music and everyone would go running out into the street. And um, it's like when I was growing up, when the ice cream van came round. Um, <laughs> and... Things like those those little details, and I could really I found her writing very evocative and descriptive, and she's a bit like somebody I think for me it felt you know when you're a child and when you look back on your childhood and, and you seem to think that you always were on summer holidays and it's yeah, always yeah. sunny it's it's very much like that she cherry picks the moments and it makes the nineteenth century feel like it was a completely idyllic and charming place which it's lovely in a way, but I, I do think there are quite rose-tinted spectacles. And the ending certainly took me by awful surprise. Yes, we won't. I mean, I know it's not yeah. fiction, but we won't spoil it nonetheless. But yes, that was I mean, also very abrupt. And I assume it's picked yeah. up more in, in the next book in the series, but, um, but I don't know. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I do definitely agree with you that it was very rose-tinted, even things like her brother going missing for two days and he was fine yeah. they found him but uh, um that must have been extremely traumatizing for her parents yeah. and for her and her brothers uh, and who knows quite what happened but um it's sort of just like a little mini adventure thrown away as a sort of humor for the punchline rather than 
you know, the stress of what actually happened. Yeah. We'll come back to that. But yes, uh, let's talk about Gwen. So I don't know if you're... Oh, no, we have the same edition, don't we? One thing that really does enhance it is the lovely illustrations, because Gwen Riverett growing up to be an, an artist, of course. Um, yeah. She did these wonderful... She's, I think, best known for woodcuts now. These aren't woodcuts, but they are lovely um, sketches of the different sights and sounds of Cambridge. And much as it pains me to say it, being an Oxford man, Cambridge is rather lovely. Yes, Cambridge is very nice. And I think she describes Cambridge beautifully and the adventures they got up to. Um, and I love the fact that they had all these... I mean, Charles Darwin had lots of children uh, and that they all lived pretty much on the same street as each other. And they all, all of the sons of Charles Darwin married late. So they all had kids at the same time. And that sense of them running in and out of each other's houses was really lovely. Absolutely, yeah. They had a really close extended family. And the way she wrote about her uncles, I found really yeah. endearing, even though um, I think they probably were more rounded than than, yeah. than she saw them. But that's true of any any child looking at their relatives. Um, and it's a much less linear book, as she very openly says. She's not, She doesn't do sort of you know chronological getting older thing it is just you know different recollections very oddly grouped into themes yeah. <laughs> um i mean it works it's just funny to sort of in the someone just telling you the reminiscences but themes like propriety down yeah. <laughs> ghosts and horrors and i love that chapter on down house which was i mean down house is down the road from my sister's house and it's that's where charles darwin lived and i just thought how amazing it, that, that did really that. feel idyllic i really enjoyed reading that yeah yeah and to know that Charles Darwin was your grandfather, it's just incredible. And I should say that he died before she was born, so yeah. she never knew him, but yes, was aware of the, the I don't know, the sense of significance. Was still alive, yes, and indeed, I've now forgotten all the other names, but he kept just mentioning people who, like cousins and things, who turned out to be famous, and he, I wish I yeah. could remember them now, but there, was, there were other writers and scientists and artists and things in the family just no one she mentioned was unfamiliar, which um, I guess there was a smaller pool to draw from from the types of people who were able to have that sort of success. But yeah, yeah. But it's, and it's interesting, I think, as well the way that she she talks about family life and the roles within family life, and you certainly get the sense her mother was quite young when she married, and she was American and flighty, and she married a much older man, and you can tell if you read between the lines. Obviously, her mother wasn't particularly happy, um, mm-hmm. and was always well, clearly found her life quite quite boring and restricted. There's also the mention a couple of times of, you know, an aunt who will be like, oh, yes, well, she was pregnant, and then we got a letter saying that she died in childbirth. And it was just like these women who, there's so many of the uncles married two or three times because, mm-hmm. you know, one day auntie was there, the next day she was dead, and there were these five orphan children to be looked after. And she doesn't, it's kind of not mentioned in passing, but it, it does make you also think, like, my goodness, it, it was a completely different world where these things were frightening for, for families. And I think I remember reading a description in there of, of somebody being pregnant and everybody was very anxious about it. And it wasn't really something to be excited about. And it was the sense of relief when it was all over and, and it was fine. And those sorts of details are things that make you, again, like the other book, things that people don't really write about in books and you wouldn't know unless somebody told you he'd live through it. So Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think it is a very good description of living in a, univer- in a university town, which in some ways yeah. hasn't changed enormously in terms of the town versus gown environments. I, I've lived in Oxford. Well, I've moved out now, but I lived in Oxford for 13 years and for eight of them I was a student and for five of them I wasn't. And it is, um, yeah, just... This, these worlds coexisting that barely overlap, particularly as an undergraduate, you just have no real sense that there are people in the town who aren't <laughs> yeah, attached <laughs> to the university. Uh, and it's, it's not a class thing, certainly as much in, as it was for Gwen River, where they, basically the non, the people who weren't associated with the university seem to be more or less invisible to them. Yeah. You know, couldn't even bear to look at them, whereas right now it's just, it's just worlds lived separately, but together. Um, yeah, and I, I, as a graduate student and then not a student, I gradually sort of moved from one category to the other. But um, I thought that was interesting that the academic world has not substantially changed in that in you know over a hundred years. Yeah, and it's is I found it really interesting actually the description of of that and also that even from children they were encouraged to be 
feel quite snobby towards yeah, yeah. people who weren't also the just the amazing description of of basically using the river as a road um and yes. what a different life it was it just sounded absolutely idyllic it's basically like a a village and then rowing up and down the river to go shopping and things i just thought that was absolutely hilarious and i didn't even realize that's what it would have been like but i suppose of course it would have done as I say, that reminded me of Barbara Common's novels, which are also often set in Bidford upon Avon, um, which I know pretty well. My friend Lorna lives there or lived there. Uh, and yeah, again, how, how the river was such a central part of their lives, partly for transport, partly just if you're a child and you live near a river, it becomes a very big part of your life. As you know, I, my village I grew up in was in a, a loop of the Avon, and it does. It's just such a significant feature of the topography that you, you know, it means quite a lot. And not sort of emotionally, but, you know, you, you think of the villages in terms of where the river is. Your walks are all about where the river is. <laughs> um, and I thought she brought that across really well, that it was fundamental in some ways to the way that she understood her way around the place that she grew up. Mm. Which, you know, I liked. And... Um, and it felt weirdly much more modern to me, her childhood, even though it was only 10 years later. And I don't know if that's to do with when it was written or what sort of person she is, or if it was just a more free and easy family. Um, I don't know if you got that same sense. Yeah, I've, I've just felt in the Gwen Ravrat one, she was kind of very honest. And I suppose the to- her tone, I, I can't think of a better way to say it. I would say she's very breezy, just, mm-hmm. oh, yes, yeah, did this and did that. Wasn't it wonderful? But um there wasn't a sense of wanting to prove a point by it or I feel like with Molly Hughes she wrote that book because she wanted people to realize how good they had it um and whereas this one I think it is more just uh these are my memoirs of my childhood and I'm writing them down so that you know one day in the future these might be useful to somebody um I think as well with Gwen Ravarat there was also that sense of wanting to record her family members who were obviously mm-hmm. well and wanting to capture that impression of them that she had as a child and see them as humans rather than as these intellectual figures that they that they were known as i suppose that's a good point and something i did find with the molly hughes which i should say because i said quite a lot of negative things i did really enjoy reading it oh but, yeah uh, yeah definitely um but it was a criticism that you had of blue remembered hills by rosemary sutcliffe a couple episodes ago that i don't agree with but <laughs> which you said of your sort of a why what's the point why is it, i don't know who this person is so why should i care and i did occasionally get that with molly hughes because as far as i know she's not noted for anything else other than writing memoirs of her childhood and a few few other books in a similar vein and occasionally when it got down to the minutiae of particular things particular to her life and not to the 1870s child's life thinking i just i'm not that interested i don't really need to know this when she was doing the more as you were saying um things that open up what many people of her class at that time's life would have been like that felt really interesting um whereas i guess going over because i was seeing her some sort of trajectory to the artist she would become but whenever that that came in it felt more um yeah just more interesting more relevant to my interest in her as an author rather than just as a chronicler of that period. Whereas I think Molly Hughes, I was only interested in her as a chronicler of the period. I didn't really care about her as an individual. Mm. No, I see. Yes, no, I, I feel the same way, really. And for me, as being an enormous fan of Charles Darwin, obviously reading Gwen Ravrat's book, I was just like, oh, it's just, I can't, it's so amazing. <laughs> and I just found it fascinating being having that glimpse into their life and the people that Charles Darwin would have known but I still think even without that connection it's still a book that stands alone and is fascinating Mm, for mm, and I should say I think it's less about her and her life as a atypical thing it's more like this is what life was like at the time and and I found that really interesting um I think perhaps maybe because Molly Hughes and her family weren't necessarily there's nothing when you read the book, there's no sort of climax. There's no incidents. Well, there is well, the ending. Well, there's one, one big incident. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah there's, there's nothing that makes you think, oh, gosh, you know, what a page turner. Do you know what I mean? So it's, uh, it's, it's a very quiet life. Um, so you're reading it really for, for the period details, for the social history, um, as opposed to it being something that, you know, a person who you can grow to love and, and want to follow. Whereas, Gwen Ravra, I think she's very good at capturing 
characters and not as far as caricature, but she's very good at, at, at drawing very effective pen portraits of people so mm. that you find them very funny. Mm. She's very funny, I think, and wise. Um, and I really enjoyed that about her writing and, and I would love to read more by her actually, but I don't think she's published anything else, did she? I don't know of any others, no. But no, I agree. I think she's, well, she's, she's really good at doing a portrait that simultaneously shows you the child's perspective whilst also a step back showing you what the person was probably actually like if you weren't seeing them as a child. So some of these uncles where she's talking about their eccentricities, you can yeah. see what she found funny about them. But there's also the bit where you think, oh, they must have been quite lonely or a bit sad that that was something about them or, you know, whatever it was about them. Um, she does that well. Whereas I think Molly Hughes does have to have that to a certain extent, but it's much more the child's perspective, which is what the book is doing. It doesn't need to not do that. But um, I think I felt there was less of the... Um, I know the the change of perspective that came with age was more just like this is what I thought about them at the time. Yeah, which you know is fair enough. I've not read any of these um, two or three other books that she wrote uh, in the so looking at the eighties, nineties, possibly one after that. Um, have you? No, I haven't. No, I kept meaning to, but I haven't got around to it. I always do see them in charity shops. Actually, well, I'm just going to turn around because I think hmm, I think I might have. Hmm. Where my H is. <laughs> I put my chair in just the wrong place. <laughs> I've just seen on um, Amazon actually that there's a. She hasn't written anything else, but um, Molly, uh, Gwen Ravrat, but there it does seem to be a biography of her by Francis Spalding, who does write very nice um, biographies that I've read before. Okay. Quite. Um, I think she's, yeah, I think she's written something about. I feel like she wrote biography of Vanessa Bell I think you could be right it turns out I do have a London girl of the 1880s and a London family between the wars so a London family between the wars does sound like it might be <laughs> more of my, my cover team yeah. so there's, yeah, so there's London China of the 1870s, London girl of the 1880s London home in the 1890s and a London family between the wars so I probably shouldn't go straight to the last one but no you should be um, also available in a box set if you bought them in 1979 when this was published. <laughs> yes, that's ones I always see. I don't think Persephone have got any plans to publish the others. I wonder why they only chose the first one. Yes, it's true. It's quite a long time ago they published it as well, so I assume maybe it didn't sell as well as they were hoping. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yes. Um, or maybe the others aren't as good. So let us know if you've read any of them or what you think. To see the comparison between them, because I mean, if they are good, then I'll, I'll next time I see them, I'll pick them up. But um, if they're not, then then why not mm. leave them behind? Well, I yes, of the two, I think we've come to that moment. Um, it's probably quite obvious. I really enjoyed them both, but I thought Period Piece was really special. Um, and again, must mention those wonderful illustrations. I really like them. Yes, absolutely. I mean, she was a wonderful artist, and I would actually like to find out more about her as an artist. In fact, this is a reminder mm, mm, that I meant to do that at the time and never did. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the same for me. I think the Molly Hughes is a wonderful piece of social history, but for characters and people that you grow to care about and, and enjoy reading about, as well as learning about the time, I think period piece pips the other one to the post. It does, and she, in fact, should mention her Persephone connection, which is where I first heard about her, that she did the woodcuts for The Runaway by Elizabeth Anna Hart which is yeah. a wonderful Victorian children's story, um, which was republished in the 40s, I think, maybe, with, with Grand Rivet's uh, woodcuts yeah. in it. Um, I would very much recommend. Well, there you go. We are in complete agreement, Rachel, in this episode. Oh, oh nice. Always nice when that happens. We are friends, really, you see. What are we doing in the next episode, Rachel? Uh, uh, well, that is a good question, and I can remember before you, you start mocking me. Um, <laughs> I'll take your time. I will. Um, I was just going to explain the context. Actually. Oh, sorry. So, sorry. obviously, last episode, um, Simon was here at my flat, um, mm -hmm. and we were looking at the bookshelves and some list of all the books that um, he had in common with me, which was very useful for the purposes of this book, of the, of the podcast, because he's always texting me saying, have you got this? And no to everything. <laughs> so he very much enjoyed looking at my Virginia Woolf collection of books. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. 
he came across Virginia Woolf and the Servants. Now, how long have you had that sitting on your shelf unread? Oh, yes. So, Mrs. Mrs. Woolf and the Servants, I should say, please, in some respect. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> which my friend gave me for my birthday, I think, in 2008, maybe? So, a while. 11 years. <laughs> um, and the second one is The Hours by, um, remind me who it's by, I can't think. Michael Cunningham. Michael Cunningham. Um, which Simon and I have both read, but we we both realised actually we haven't read again in a long time, and we both absolutely love it. Yes. Um, so the hours for people who don't know is um, a story inspired by um, Mrs. Dalloway, and it includes Virginia Woolf as a character. In fact, just thinking about it, it's a very good multi-narrative, multi-perspective yes, <laughs> novel that we did but, not mention earlier. <laughs> You weren't just thinking about that, Simon. You planned that all along. Yes, seamless, seamless. (laughs) So yes, two different books that use Virginia Woolf as a starting point, essentially. So Mrs. Woolf and the Servants, Fairless and Light is non-fiction. The Hours is fiction. But I think it'll be interesting to see how different writers were inspired to write books by Virginia Woolf. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to revisiting, actually, because I'm going to have to reread them both because it's been absolute years. Oh, fun. I can tear Um, myself away from... um, wartime Germany then you know <laughs> yes you might get a, a touch of wartime in in Mrs. Wolf and the Servants but yeah yeah not in Germany um well yeah. yes if that's what we'll do next time Rachel's got the Easter holidays coming up so we'll have plenty of time to do the reading so we'll be back <laughs> two weeks to the day from yes. no, I'm not going to promise anything but we'll, we'll speak to you when we no, speak you. I will do I'm going on a very long train journey to Devon so um oh, perfect and though I will be on holiday with my nephews, so all people who are around small children know that it doesn't really work with reading. But they but, love having the Jimmy um, Wolf themed books read aloud to them. I That's bet they will love, love it. <laughs> That's like their usual face whenever I appear with a book. Oh, face. <laughs> and I'm going away to Dorset with 24 other people, so I'll do some reading there. 24? I know. It's insane. <laughs> wow. The bonus for so many people is that they won't notice if I'm just reading a book somewhere else. So That's true. You can hide yourself away quite successfully, I should imagine. <laughs> well, we will report back on our progress. Do please read along if you can. Yes, and let us know any ideas for other episodes. Thanks to those you have, and we'll be getting to those in episodes soon. Okay. Yes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can see a list of all the books and authors we've mentioned at stuckinabook.com. You can find Rachel at booksnob.wordpress.com. You can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash tea or books, where there are various rewards and offer. Many thanks to everyone who does. Particular thanks to Liana, Mark, Gracie, Elizabeth, and Randy. You're great. Uh, hope you, everyone has a great week. Hope you're reading something good, and we'll speak to you soon. Bye.